0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And I am back, sitting at my desk today in the construction zone. I apologize if there's noise, and I hope we don't have to start this over, the wonders of live radio. Uh, But I wanted to get back to work. I'm sitting at the desk. The cats are overjoyed to see me. It's always nice to get a nice response when you head home. Uh, Sarah and I had a lovely evening last night here in Milan. We went out to a, a, a quartet that was playing the music of Ennio Morricone. Being Italy, of course, this was placed in the home of a former cardinal, a beautiful 16th century palazzo downtown, where there were candles lit all around the quartet, and we were entranced for an hour listening to this. And well, this is something, Sarah, and I do. We make a big point of having a date night, and once a month, come hell or high water, wherever I am and whatever we're doing, we find a day that we're together to do something cultural, and, and I love these things. We went to the Van Gogh exhibit, I'm going to do a riff on Van Gogh down the road about his time in Arles, where his paintings came together as his life fell apart, but it was this wonderful exhibition, of Van Gogh paintings, the largest in the world with the exception of the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, of course. And I love this. This is the great thing about living in Europe. Not only did I listen to a quartet uh, before a packed house in uh, the former palace, the 16th century Renaissance palace of a cardinal with candles everywhere, listening to Morricone, Morricone music. I mean, everything about this is Europe at its absolute finest, and why I've loved living here. And I certainly care about Europe. Two of my three children are European. Sarah's European. And I care intensely that the place do well. But it's not doing well. And for far too long, we've lied to Europeans at cocktail parties. We've listened to their nonsense. And I blame primarily here the Wilsonians who are the status quo establishment. We listen to their plans as rather than doing the hard work of things, the Europeans come up with endlessly more complicated flowcharts of organization. Uh, That's the problem with functionalism and Manetism, that the EU tries to take the politics out of politics, the work out of work, and spend all their time constructing overly ingenious Rube Goldberg contraptions of how they can bureaucratically do away with hard work and sacrifice and choices. And they are too often lotus eaters. And rather than mess up the flow, because like my concerto, you're sitting somewhere in a beautiful building, a palazzo somewhere, with very well-educated, charming Europeans that that, that speak your language, that have gone to the same universities as we have, like St. Andrew's in my case, uh, and you want them to succeed. And it's such a hassle to point out the elephants in the room, the goblins they don't want to deal with the realities they don't want to face. It's much easier to nod and say, good luck with your flowchart, knowing in your heart it will mean nothing. Why do I know this? Back to the key fact of our community. History, not political science, should guide political risk. History, the lived experience of human beings as we've actually lived, rather than theoretically lived over the past 3,000 years, guides us. And what does history tell us? There's an awful lot of rewriting of history for Europeans, particularly regarding NATO. And that's what I want to get into today. And the danger of lying to Europeans at cocktail parties, of not saying the the difficult or uncomfortable thing because you'll offend them and ruin a delightful conversation over a very nice glass of Prosecco. The danger of this is that we never deal with anything that matters. We're still talking at the meetings I go to for my sins about the same things we were talking about in 1991. Um, I've been at this a long time now, and the reality is they simply haven't moved on, that it's an endless time warp, that it's Groundhog Day, and I'm Bill Murray waking up to Sonny and Cher over and over again, making no headway whatsoever. Because unlike Bill Murray in that delightful classic, one of my favorite movies, they never learn anything. Part of why they never learn anything is we never tell them the hard truth and that's what friends and allies ought to do so i'm here to talk about hard truths not because i hate europe but precisely because i care about it and here here's here's a list of it but before i do that i want to explain the riffs i had a client and he's allowed me to say this thank you uh that the riffs somehow don't count that i'm not doing research so it doesn't matter and like jazz this this gives no credit to hours thousands of hours of practice My riffing when I do these, they're some of the best of our podcasts and some of the worst, but they are the most intellectually adventurous. I'm just sitting here on my own, talking to our community, thinking out loud with you. I'm not going to edit anything. What you're going to get is the truth. Mandela's just walked in. You're going to get the truth, aren't you, Mandela? And you're going to get me thinking aloud with you and as a community. But let's not pretend this is shallow. This is creative. This is what corporates don't do. They read the FT and think that somehow that's right, despite the FT being wrong about literally everything. And let me explain what I mean. Iraq, Afghanistan, the rise of Trump, the rise of China, COVID. The FT was wrong about all these things, and yet my banker clients still read the pink newspaper as though it was settled gospel. I like being with people who are right. I don't care what their politics are, I care that they're right. If they're right often, above the APE score, and certainly not under the APE score like the always wrong FT, I take them seriously. This seems to me a revolutionary fact nowadays because things are that bad. But my clients know better. They're looking for the truth. They're looking to work together creatively. Riffing in a jazz-like way where I know the beginning and I know the end like this isn't laziness It's being highly creative in a field that desperately political risk, needs more creativity, not less creativity, needs to move beyond the flawed conventional wisdom that has been so wrong over the last generation so often. And what you're getting, like a good jazz musician with me, is thousands and thousands of hours of work. I didn't just show up this morning with my espresso and start talking. That's what you're getting. And that's why I like doing these with you all and why I will continue to do so. Uh, Thank you for letting me say that, client. That was very kind of you, because I wanted to make that clear. I love these myself, and many of you do, so we'll keep them coming. And so here's the riff. Here's what I would say to a European at a cocktail party. And I admit, I'm far better about this than most of my colleagues, either of whom have drunk the Kool-Aid Wilsonians. So again, when Jimmy Carter won the Nobel Prize, I remember saying, great, a bunch of European social Democrats just gave an American social Democrat a prize, And it was a joke, but I wasn't wrong. Europeans are, to a man, Wilsonians. They are one of three American schools of thought and foreign policy, really. Uh, Frankly, all of them tend to be Wilsonian. It's quite striking. Not a lot of realists going around and not a lot of neoconservatives going around. So, of course, they favor American Wilsonians, European Wilsonians. They see the world the same way. They believe in the international order. They believe in international law trumping national interests. They believe in supranationalism. They believe interdependence means you have to solve problems at a supranational level. They don't much believe in sovereignty. They don't much believe in hard power. They think economics will take care of everything. And guess what? They have been proven fatally wrong. But it's unsurprising a bunch of American Wilsonians at a cocktail party. And let me tell you, European self-select. It's like something out of the 1950s when forward-thinking liberals in the eastern establishment would say... I have this black friend or I have this Jewish friend pretending that there wasn't mass discrimination going on against both groups. The number of people who say, here's John, our circus animal, he's my one realist friend. He won't bite you. In fact, he knows which fork to use, we assume because of St. Andrews. There is a huge cultural self-selection going on. And so as a result, Europeans are very badly guided. They don't get to meet realists. They don't get to meet neoconservatives much, though more than they should at the Munich conference where Mr. Ferguson was spreading his nonsense about a third world war, entirely wrong about everything and telling them exactly what they shouldn't hear. But in general, I don't know, 75% of the people they meet at least are Wilsonians. So there's a mind meld and a group think, but they're prisoners of the Four Seasons Hotel, they're all stuck in the same hotel with the same education saying the same thing, and they can't figure out why they're wrong over and over again about Afghanistan, Iraq, the rise of Trump, the rise of China, COVID, et cetera. They, I left out the financial crisis, that too. So on all these big issues, they're wrong, and they all agree, and they can't see why the rest of the world doesn't just shut up and do what they say, and, and it makes them very frustrated but it doesn't make them very good analysts. So there is a cultural self-selection to these things that leads to lying. Because a lot of them aren't lying. They truly believe what the Europeans do. They've all drunk the same Kool-Aid. The rest of us, though, often are lying. We know better. Even even kind of hard, hardcore Wilsonians, we roll our eyes. The Europeans say a number of things to talk away their declining power status. Here's what's not mentioned at the cocktail parties. And I'm just going to lay out a couple things in the next 15 minutes. But these are fundamental facts of power and why Europe is now the least of the great powers. And I don't say that with any joy because they're a natural ally for the United States, but relatively they're sliding down the table. Let's just look at the three indices of power, which are economics, political unity over foreign policy, and uh, military wherewithal. Economics, where Europe is supposed to be strongest, Over the last 15 years, so 60 quarters, this didn't just happen yesterday, most of my adult working life, Europe has fallen ever further behind the United States. And here is just, if you're going to learn one factoid from this entire thing, listen to this one. Over the last 15 years, the Eurozone has grown at only 9%. It has been utterly sclerotic. During that same period of time, the last 15 years, the United States has grown at 86%. So over the last 15 years, the numbers are U.S. 86% growth, Europe 9% growth. Europe is flatlined, and America has gone from strength to strength. The main reason for this is the high-tech boom. Almost all American, American-inspired, the American companies, some of which are the size now of serious European economies. What am I talking about? Alphabet, Meta, uh, the usual Apple uh, these companies, Amazon, are all American. The Europeans have nothing like it. They have not ridden the wave of innovation to the next cycle. They're still stuck. Germany is a great example where I just was high-end manufacturing. But the European economic model—Tattoos just come hearing my voice. The European economic model is no good at all because the German model is no good at all because it's based. On a flawed system cheap Russian gas to make high-end products to then sell to China well they're huge they're two huge political risks there's no longer any cheap Russian gas and nor will there be And the Europeans instead under mrs. miracle the most overrated states person I've ever met making Barack Obama look worthy this is a woman who basically said we can handle the Russians and we're gonna go more in hock to them we're addicted to Russian gas and oil and we're gonna become more addicted and everyone cheered her as though she was some kind of genius. These very Europeans at cocktail parties, of course, all of whom loved her, loved her Wilsonian view, and thought that they could kick the can in history. But history in the end bites back. And it turns out being in hot to the Russians is the end of your economic model. That woman had to have rocks thrown at her, as Neville Chamberlain did by little children. After Winston Churchill came to power, he actually had to send a guard to protect him. That should be history's verdict. She is responsible for what came after. She's the Stanley Baldwin of Germany. So the economic engine of Europe is Germany. The model is broken. They don't get cheap Russian gas. And it is highly problematic, given what's happening with the Cold War between the United States and China, that Germany is easily going to be able to export with abandon to China moving ahead. Um, And so the whole model is broken. And we see that the German numbers, it's now the sick man of Europe. Um, in terms of economic wherewithal. Well, this is a problem when the motor of, of Europe is now the sick man of Europe. And so this is another issue. So I have 60 quarters on my side. And what do we have in Europe's side? Nothing, where it's flatlined while America's boomed and the tech boom has taken off. And at the same time, Germany, certainly the economic motor of the continent is going nowhere fast. And everyone who's been to Europe knows the problems. Economic sclerosis, work shyness, as Christopher Hitchens rightly put it, it's considered a human right violation if you even bring up the fact that work and productivity must be tied to benefits. That's somehow a barbaric thing to say. So philosophically, they're nowhere. They want six-week holidays, but they're not prepared to work and innovate. These holidays in the European safety net came about in the 50s and 60s when Europe was booming, when it was the most productive area in the world. But they're not now about to give up their benefits now that they're one of the least productive areas in the world. And in fact, they are now seen as a human right. So this is a a continent in late stage economic decadence. There doesn't seem to be anything on the horizon that's going to change the trajectory of 86% U.S. growth, 9% European growth. So and even Americans, lefty Americans used to say, we should be more like Europe. You don't hear Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren saying that anymore. Why? Nobody wants to be like a place that isn't growing, that's not aspirational, that has no future in terms of innovation. Europe is flatlining. It's rich. It's very pleasant to be here, and it will be so for the rest of my lifetime. But in terms of an indice of power, it's flatlining. Nobody mentions the 9% growth over 15 years and the 86% American growth. Nobody mentions Europe's colossal debt rates without spending any money on the military, No one says anything about any of this at cocktail parties. It would ruin the mood. Second, military matters. And and this one is hysterical. I've actually had people write in from my last column saying, yeah, but look at all the European countries that are now going to meet the 2% defense spending finally. And that's true. In 2024, a large number of Europeans will finally meet the standard they should have met two generations ago. Again, that they've just caught up now to what they should have done, the horse has surely left the stable. And that is what the danger of lying to Europe means. By not telling the Europeans, we all know they're freeloaders. And this isn't news. I mean, the idea that Donald Trump invented this is ridiculous. Uh, Barack Obama, in his passive-aggressive way, was frustrated by this. Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, who knew a thing or two, his valedictory speech was about the fact, correctly, good political risk analyst, that if... Europe doesn't get its act together. A populist of the left or the right is going to wonder why in the world are we paying for these freeloading Europeans? This goes all the way back to Eisenhower. And again, this is rewritten constantly and needs correcting. The point of of putting troops, stationing troops in Europe was that we allowed domestically, Italy and France specifically, to get back on their feet to not have to worry about security issues. The United States would take care of that for 10 years. We well, would have the nuclear guarantee, which would stop Russia coming over the Fulda Gap. But Eisenhower even said when he was the first SAC here, if American troops are still stationed in Europe at the end of the 1950s, this has been a failure. Guess what? 75 years later, we're still there and they're still dependent on us. We have infantilized them. Europeans watch what happens in defense issues like a movie. We like it. We don't like it. But there's no agency. They're not involved in this. As I famously said to a German general, my high school could take your army. It is appalling that we didn't press them more on this. So the idea that a number of them have finally met the standard 80 years later doesn't impress me. More important is what the prime ministers of Estonia and Latvia and Mark Rutte, maybe the next sec gen of NATO, have said, stop whining about Trump and let's get our own house in order. It is way too late for me to believe this is going to happen, but they need to begin yesterday. Europeans do nothing fast. Instead, we get miracle-like nonsense. We will do our homework, meaning stop bothering us and it's day in the future we'll make the hard decisions and spend the money we need to cut into our safety net or borrow more to actually have a functioning military. And everyone knows that most European militaries are useless. The only two European militaries that can do full-spectrum missions, barely, barely, are the British and the French. Everybody else can only do niche things. That's it. They are one of the richest places in the world, and they've chosen, I feel like Colonel Jessup, you mock me from the safety of a French cafe spitting on me and despising America as it gives you the very freedom that allows you to do that. We should have said that, and we should have said it generations ago. I fault them primarily, but also us, for not bringing up the elephant in the room. It is going to lead to resentment and frustration, and indeed, it has done so since the days of Eisenhower. This isn't new. The only difference is that Trump actually means if you don't spend enough money, we're going to consider not defending you. Like that's news. Alliances, in the end, are not Wilsonian, they are realists, they are based on interests. And only if American interests are served by having a viable NATO on its border where Europe contributes does this work. I don't want to hear the French nonsense about, oh, if we did all that, you then wouldn't take us seriously. I'll make you a deal. Let's say you become capable as a continent. I think then we can argue about power sharing. First do burden sharing. It's a way to do nothing like so many European arguments are, they're reductionist, negationist, do nothing as though we wouldn't give you more of a say. The only way geostrategically NATO is going to work is if NATO in Europe takes care of its own near abroad, meaning specifically North Africa and the immigration problems, the fermenting Balkans, and even to an extent, Vladimir Putin in Russia. These are second-order interests for the United States. We'll be involved. Of course we should be involved. We're not going away, but Europe must take the lead with American involvement while we pivot to Asia, actually do what Obama said, and pivot to Asia in the Indo-Pacific, where all the fu- much of the world's future risk and much of the world's future economic reward are. That's where American interests are involved and where we need to work with allies out there To deal with Chinese adventurism. That's the overwhelmingly most important issue to deal with. But instead of that, we're we're talking about Vladimir Putin. We're talking about North Africa and the Balkans. I can't think of things that matter less. I'm not worried about Vladimir Putin marching into Berlin, Paris, Milan, or anywhere else. The man can't even take over East Ukraine. But the Europeans act like after all this time and all this infantilization, somehow they can't manage manage to deal with the Russians. They've admitted they're only going to give Ukraine half the artillery shells they promised by their own March 2024 deadline. And again, only two European countries, France and the UK, can do full military spectrum issues. The German, Italian and Spanish militaries, let me call out the problem, are the ultimate freeloaders. And whether they meet the number finally in 2024 is utterly beside the point. The horse has left the stable. You need to prove to me you're not deadbeats. Why? Because I have 75 years of showing that you are. So don't act shocked that I'm demanding something from you. And don't act shocked that I don't believe you when I have all these years in front of me. Prove me wrong. I'd love to be wrong about this. But I simply don't believe the loaded seaters are prepared to give up their six-week holidays in order to have a military or make the hard choices that the late stage decadence has led them into. If I'm wrong, I will immediately say so. And I'm even saying what they need to do. If Europe takes the lead in North Africa, the Balkans, and with Russia, with us involved, and we can pivot to the Indo-Pacific, you're not going to hear anybody talk about getting out of NATO. But it has to suit American interests. It isn't a sacred, one-way, infantilized commitment. And somehow, Europe has been asleep for the last 75 years, and part of the problem is we didn't press them far harder. People like Obama, Mr. Passive-Aggressive, let's avoid conflict, he'd privately rant and rave about them, but why ruin the cocktail party? Shame on him and shame on them. Third, politically, enough with the flow charts, enough with redesigning a new structure that will deal with it. It's about capability, today, tomorrow, the day after. I don't care, and this is where I'm a good American. I'm agnostic about the flowchart, the organizational chart, which is what Europeans live for, particularly Eurocrats in Brussels. I am absolutely agnostic about that. What I'm not agnostic about is anything coming of it. There's a library full of NATO plans and European plans for a greater defense, but they don't do anything. It takes the place of action. They'd rather play with the flowchart then make the hard choices and tell their people, you know, maybe you only get four weeks holiday, then we're going to spend the rest on defense. Maybe we should train together. Maybe every single Europe, and here the French are right, maybe every single European country doesn't need a frigate. Maybe we need a European-style defense plan within NATO. I'm so desperate for capability that that argument is over. Nobody cares how they do it. If they want to have a European component within NATO, the French dream... That's fine as long as they deliver the capability. No one in the Republican Party, which used to be against this by against it when I started working 30 years ago, nobody now is against this. What we're against is the lack of capability. So I'm begging you, do it any way you want to. If you want to have a European component and NATO is the French desire, but the East Europeans are against and the Germans are against, sort it out. But don't use the fact that it's complicated or you don't agree on a structure as an excuse to do nothing, because history won't wait for you. I mean, I remember in To More Boldly, writing about the serene Republic of Venice, you know, here in Italy. And of course, they had enjoyed cocktail parties for centuries and literally had disarmed themselves to the point that Napoleon tied his ships up at the Lido and marched in with only one loss of life. A couple cannon were fired, and then they surrendered. That's where Europe is now. This is a choice, and we need to press them. Either you get your act together or we're moving on. And it's not that we'll leave NATO. I mean, this is, again, ridiculous. We just won't take it seriously. We just won't do much of anything. It will end, as I've said many times before, with a shrug, not with shouting, but with American shrugging. As Tom Hanks said famously, Americans talk like hippies but act like gangsters. What he means is is that at base, Americans are a pragmatic people. And that is now coming on. The United States has its own problems to solve, which Europeans don't know anything about. When I mention the opioid crisis, which has killed 120,000 Americans, Europeans are curious. They've never heard of it because they only talk to East and West Coast Wilsonians who know nothing about what's going on in the center of the country and how the opioid crisis has ravaged the country. The Sacklers ought to be in prison, all of them. Come on. We all know this. More people die per year from the opioid crisis than died in Vietnam, almost double. And no European knows about this. We have a $34 trillion deficit. We have an education system in utter ruins. We have crumbling roads as opposed to here in beautiful Italy. We don't have a train system. We, our healthcare system's a mess. So on all these fronts, we have our own concerns. And I'm sick of babysitting the entitled Europeans when if, they, if they want to be an ally, it's about, do you have any capability? Is it in America's interest to continue to commit to an alliance? And it's not that we have to prove to them. It's Radek Sikorsky, neocon flunky, former AEI flunky. I knew Raddock before he was foreign minister, back when he was cheerleading for the Iraq war in um, AEI. And Raddick acts like, well, we're trying out to be your protector. This is how delusional things have gotten. This is how utterly delusional they've gotten. I don't want to infantilize you. I don't want to be your protector. I want an ally. I want an equal. I want someone who has capability that can help me with the American views of the world. We have our own interests and they aren't to babysit you while you arrogantly look down upon me. That's looking at you, Raddick, as though somehow you're, you're, you're doing me a favor in letting me protect you. The world is changing. The world is waking up. The days of lying to Europeans at cocktail parties, thank God, are over. Thanks very much, funded riff this and do this to start off the Monday. Um, the book's going great. I'll talk to you more about the events as they as they line up. Please do buy the book today, The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism, which ahead of the fact laid out the problems that NATO was going to run into over lying to Europeans at cocktail parties. Again, we were ahead of the curve. Judge us by our record. Over 80 percent, the best call record in the business. And you can see that we said that in the book in black and white. Please do buy. It's going great. It's on Amazon everywhere. Please do subscribe. So many of you have. Um, to our week. And I love doing these. I managed even to do them again on my lap. And I'm sorry for the sound quality, but I managed to do them on my lap in Germany. We're now back to the desk, but around the world in 20 minutes, the contest 2024, the Patrick Henry podcast and the culture section where we're looking in to the magic of Robert Altman, the great director. We started with McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the greatest to any Western ever told. We're going to move on to an interesting failure. Uh, I think of Altman's The Long Goodbye, where he takes Raymond Chandler, a guy we've already talked about in the author section, and um, puts it to film. A very interesting failure with Elliot Gould that we'll talk about this week. If you like any and all of this stuff for the price of just an espresso, $70 a year, we're going to keep me going and keep us going as a community. Thanks ever so much. Great to be home. And I will be talking soon about our very exciting and important trip to New York Uh, where we do the salon dinner for the Cook Foundation, and then down south to speak to the Speaker of the House and his people, you heard me right, Uh, and very high-level House Foreign Affairs folks, about The Last Best Hope as we try to make our book history. Please join us, and I'll take you along for the ride that week. I'm going to do very short podcasts about our entire week. John and I are going to be there, and Sarah's joining us in New York. So in JFK-like fashion, Bobby and Jackie will be there with me. Can't wait and can't wait to take you with us. Take care.